guys and welcome back to the daily dose podcast it is kinsey as always with nate as always um today is a very exciting episode it is our first guest episode with dr sarah dr sarah wright uses she her pronouns and is a licensed psychologist and certified sex therapist and supervisor dr sarah also works at the u of se counseling center working with students on a wide variety of things from mental health to sexual care Dr. Sarah is also a published author. Her book, Redefining Trauma, Understanding and Coping with a Cortisoke Brain, explores how the brain reacts to stress and how we define trauma. So thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Sarah. We're so excited to have you. Wow, what a comprehensive introduction. Thank you. <laughs> we try to really lay it all out there. Yeah, I feel like a whole grown-up. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you go introduce yourself and just kind of talk about a little bit what you do. Um, I don't know that I could do much better than you did. So I, um, as a sex therapist in the state of South Carolina, one of only eight in our whole state of South Carolina, one of only two who is a psychologist and one of only different two who is a supervisor. There are not a lot of people down here who do this work. Um, so in other places where it is more saturated, people will uh, specialize and I don't really have that opportunity. So anything under the umbrella of sexual health is my wheelhouse. Um, so whether that's orgasm, arousal, um, trauma, gender, orientation, identity, fetishes, kink, all of the things. Um, and so I think I have the funnest job ever. Never the same day twice. I was Sounds say, like see, it. It, was, it seems like one of those jobs that like you, like every day you walk in, you're like, all right, what, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of, what am I going to walk into today? Definitely seems like yeah. it changes up for every once in a while. Seems fun. Yes. Seems <laughs> like you definitely get to explore a lot of really fun and things that aren't, you know, prevalent or talked about, which is why we're so excited to talk to you. Um, Cause a lot of people aren't really, I guess, comfortable talking about sex or, you know, any of the things that fall under that category. Um, and obviously we are a mental health podcast, so we kind of wanted to get your take on, you know, people tend to avoid talking about sex when they're talking about mental health. I mean, we haven't even talked about it yeah, so we, far yeah. well, because like last week we had, last week we had an episode pretty much talking about, you know, re just relationships and, you know, from our, you know, our experiences, our perspective, obviously experience. being, being still, you know, kids in college, you know, we, we just kind of talked about just, you know, the mental health aspect of, you know, like what it feels like being in a good relationship and, and stuff like that. But we did, but we left out, I guess, the sex part relationship kind of in anticipation for this. For you. Um, <laughs> yeah, Build so, up dopamine. Hell yeah. So <laughs> we go. just kind of wanted to get your perspective on like why sex is important to mental health kind of specifically and like why you think people avoid talking about it um, as well. Those are excellent questions, and those are very big questions. Um, I'm going to answer them in reverse order. Go for it. Um, so one of the things that I, I think about as a sex therapist is it fascinates me that it is one of the few things that all of mankind has in common, and yet it's still one of the most difficult to talk about. It is just such a paradox, and especially in American culture, we flaunt sexuality everywhere. Look at billboards, magazines, television. Um, yet there's no language for it. We don't talk about it. So it creates this dissonance. It's confusing. Wait a minute. So am I supposed to do this? Am I not supposed to do this? If I do this, I get judged. If I don't do this, I get judged. And so there's all this um, just stickiness around it that then we get no guidance from. 
And so I think then what happens if we can trace it all the way back to colonization, um, Puritans, Puritans colonized this country. So they were very um, suppressive of sex and sexuality to the point that sexual expressiveness in um, the indigenous communities and communities of color was used as a means of um, of creating fear and of oppression. So they would say, look how, look at, uh, look at those Mexicans and how they dance and how they dance with each other. And that's so disgusting. That's so evil. Um, and so sexual expression became tied with a lot of communities of color as a means of subjugation. And then it became quote unquote bad. And, and even if we then go back to, um, to people who were enslaved, that was one of the ways. So fear is one of the best methods of control. Um, and so white people were given the message, uh, especially white women, black men are coming to rape you. Black men are coming to get you, be terrified. So not only did that create the stigma that black men are overly sexualized, which is still incredibly prevalent today, uh, but it instilled fear, which was ironic because it was actually white men who were raping all kinds of people. But, you know, don't look here. Look right. at how scary this is. Yeah. Um, and so these, these, roots that we have around fear and sexuality run very, very deep. Now pair that with, and I'm going to use this as kind of bridge into your other question about mental health. So human brains, I'm kind of a brain nerd, human brains have not evolved nearly as fast as our society. And so in my brain, the stress from having five email accounts, two papers due, trying to figure out what to have for dinner, and a bear about to eat my face off, all the same chemical. It's all stress. And so our brain perceives stress ultimately as a threat to safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so where our brains are evolutionarily, a human being cannot survive alone. If a human being's on their own without a tribe, they're probably going to die. And so when our brains perceive rejection from our group, they perceive it as a threat to our safety. Okay. And so one of the things I know your podcast talks a lot about is stigma. Like, why don't people talk about this? Mm -hmm. This is why. This is how stigma works. So the word stigmatize is actually ancient Greek, and it means to mark with a sharp or pointed instrument. And so in ancient Greece, they would actually stigmatize their slaves on their faces. They would tattoo them on their faces so that when slaves went out to market, it was clearly identifiable who was a slave. So to stigmatize is to mark somebody as other and less than. It is a rejection from the group, which then for that person perceived as a threat to safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so anything that we do that is perceived as making us different from our group, we're going to try to minimize and make it small so that we stay accepted and we stay safe. Okay. That's a whole lot of big picture yeah. to say that then if the group around me, if it's primarily white conservative Christian folks are saying this is bad, even if maybe in my heart of hearts, I don't believe that it suits me better evolutionarily to play along so that according to my brain, I don't die. Wow. That is fascinating, but it makes so much sense because we, yeah, totally. I'm, wow. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm taking a fiction and mental health class right now. Who's that professor is actually our next guest. And we talk a lot about things like that, like how the brain, the science plays into mental health and stigma around mental health. I think especially in regard to sex and, you know, what people common culture perceives to be like sexual divergence and things, why that is so stigmatized. Like that just, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I had no idea, like I had no idea, but like I never even thought to look like, like way back. Like you probably, like you brought, you started, from, you started like, and like you started with like, it goes all the way back to the Puritans. Like I'd never even <laughs> thought 
to you know to to look at I guess like it's almost like a cultural evolution of problems and stigmatizations and that's just something I never really picked up on I always thought you know the problems of today today's society are pretty I I guess yeah pretty today like are pretty like today problems but I guess what you're saying is like that's not really the case yeah and the point you made about how the brain has not evolved as fast as our society has evolved really that's like very eye-opening to a lot of problems across a lot of areas of life in general Um, but especially mental health and sex itself like the way there's so many things that don't evolve as fast as society evolves but the brain is a stem of all of it my mind is blown right now i'm literally (laughs) reconfiguring my whole life view but um Wow. I think that's a, like I said, really great point, especially with sex and mental health, because, you know, as we work to destigmatize mental health, we have to work to destigmatize sex because it all plays in together. Um, and to follow that up, one of our questions was, you know, there's been a lot of work done to destigmatize mental health, especially on the U of SC campus here. Um, a lot of initiatives to do that. Um, there's another mental health podcast on campus, a lot of different events and things like that. But um, especially coming from your point of view and your profession, like what do you think the next step is going to be to further the work of destigmatizing mental health? What a great question. Um, so one of the things I think about is um, human brains don't work in the negative. If I tell you don't think about a platypus, that adorable furry little freak just popped right into your head. Can't help <laughs> you it. did. I'm <laughs> yeah. a platypus. Yeah, it's how your brain works. Brains don't work in the negative. So if I tell you don't do something, you have to call that thing up and then do the extra work to say not. So when you say, how do we destigmatize? How do we move away from stigma? That doesn't tell me anything. If you tell me one direction you don't want to go in, there are still 359 other options we can choose. I have no idea which way you want to go. Um, And so if you were to ask me, then what direction do you think we need to go in? That's an easy one. I think we need to evolve emotional intelligence. We do not live in an emotionally intelligent society. We don't know how to mess up. We don't know how to apologize. We don't know how to take responsibility. We don't, um, as a society, talk about what it means to forgive outside the context of religion. Um, We don't um, understand collectively the interplay of logic and emotion. People see these things as opposite and they're not. They're beautifully, intricately entwined, just like the idea of a nature-nurture debate. That's a fallacy. There is no debate. It's not an either-or. One doesn't exist without the other. How we think changes the wiring of our brain. How our brain is wired influences how we think. How do we tease those apart? It's not possible. Um, And it is a very Eurocentric way of thinking to try to reduce something to its most basic parts in an effort to understand it. It's, it's just not true. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. And so emotional intelligence is a big one. The other one is we have got to play more. We do not have enough fun. Um, Americans and especially white Americans, man, that internalized capitalism, that idea of being our worth being measured by our output is going to kill us. Yeah. It's going to wow. kill us. We take fewer vacations than any other industrialized nation. Um, we do not create space when people are, are raising young ones. And I will tell you, as somebody who's chosen not to birth children, um, I still have babies that I'm responsible for. I got them and I got married. They're excellent. I love them. And I'm really grateful that all my organs are still in the same places. Um, and <laughs> partly it's because I know I would not be supported to take the time I know that growing brain needs. 
what we know neuroscientifically is that one of the, um, so every part of the brain has a different critical period of development. Brain doesn't just develop as a whole. And so ideally from a neurodevelopmental perspective, kids would be with a parent full time from zero to two. Mm -hmm. Find a job that's going to help make that happen. Very and rare. So, yeah. so I Check think what all. happens, right. And so one of the ways that then systems don't like to change, systems like a status quo. And if any part of that system gets out of line, that system is going to exert a lot of pressure on it to keep it in its place. Because changing a system takes a lot of effort. This is true in our brains. This is true in our society and our culture, on and on. And so when, we, when people then ask the question, what can I do? To, to change this. I think one of the things too is to recognize this is forces beyond individual control. American culture loves to give us this message of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you work hard enough, you can do anything. That is just neurobiologically not very accurate. Um, and so you know, I think it's taking, funny. Not taking into account basically the person rather than kind of just like system oriented. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, anybody who, um, I mean, think about for college students, especially people see this, you know, they leave home, they come to college, they evolve, they change their personhood. They have this now new iteration of their humanness. They go back home. How often does family just readily accept this new personness? They're like, no, no, you be home by 11. You tell me where you're going, who you're going to be with. Okay. I'm 21. I don't care. You're under my roof. This is how it goes. And then what do we quickly do? But mom, we revert right back into that same role. And then it's like, oh my God, did I just do that? Did that come out of my mouth? <laughs> That's such a, a micro example of how systems don't like to change and how we can look at that 21 year old and say, well, just persist in who you are. But when mom's treating me that way, grandma's treating me that way, uncle Jim's treating me that way, how much resolve do we keep expecting that person to show to be responsible for changing an entire system? And this is what we do to oppress people in this country. We say, well, don't tolerate it. Don't take it. Just continue to be you no matter how you're treated, even though our brains are not even remotely wired that way. Right. We do a lot to tell individuals to, to change, but then we still continue to support the same systems that, or allow the same systems that are making that person lash out. We actually talked a lot about that in one of our previous episodes, more the, the micro example you gave of like how to yeah. differentiate between you go to college and you evolve. And then if you go back home, I think we talked about like going home for break Yeah, yeah. and yeah. how that can be like so hard to deal with, like a, with like your mentality and your mental health. And that is such a great example because it is like, that's very much how the world itself is. You're told to go become this individual and do all these big grand grandiose things but when it's over you got to go back to the, <laughs> yeah. but when it's over let's not get but we're not going to give you any help to get there and yeah. basically yeah. put you up against a two mile tall wall and tell you to start climbing like it just it's really sad but it's kind of funny how people can just do that and they don't see a problem with it like there's so few people who i mean you know in the grand scheme of things probably a lot of people but there's very rarely do people recognize those systems. They think that that is just how it is, that you are just supposed to be tough and be strong. And I think a lot of that comes from like in your childhood, that's, you know, kids are taught to just deal with it. Stop crying. You know, don't have temper tantrums. Deal like with guys. A lot, oh, so. with guys. A oh, lot. especially with guys. Yeah, I was about to yeah. say like, like I like, like one of the struggles that I have is like anxiety and telling, like, I, I like, like you said, I like to, 
have the mentality. If I have a problem, well, I'm going to pick up my bootstraps. and I'm going to work through it. Cause like, I, you know, I can feel like with guy, uh, guys a lot, you know, it's hard to be, be vulnerable. It's mm-hmm. hard. Yes. It's hard to, you know, I feel like a, a guy's job is to get a job done and it's hard to admit you can't get that job done. Mm-hmm. Well, at least that, that is for me. And I don't know, it, it just all kind of, like you were saying, it just all kind of ties in together with it. I don't know. Systems yeah. all very, they tend to mirror each other. I mean, the way mm-hmm. we're raised as children is very similar to how we're treated until the day we go in the grave. It's, and it's one of those things. And because we're so ingrained with that from the time you're born to the time you die, like, how do you change that system? Like, yeah. like you said, like it's, it's a single person up against uh, centuries of development and society and culture all culminating into the present. It's, it seems impossible, but the work does have to be done um, because I think a lot of people are starting to realize that this isn't sustainable the way we live and the way we, we treat other people and the way we treat ourselves. And that's yes. a big reason why we do this podcast is to try to yeah. be two people up against the world, at least not just one. <laughs> and, and I think what a beautiful example, because then um, let's say even only five people listen to this um, and then they are so inspired. Each of those five tells two mm. and each of those two tells three. And yes, that's what bigger, broader change looks like. And I think one of the things that's important is that people are doing it when they don't have to. Um, when somebody is chronically or repeatedly oppressed for any reason, neurobiologically, what that does to not get too, to not get too dense, um, it basically continues to douse that brain with stress chemicals, and then there's not the chance for it to dry up. And so you read the title of my book. Um, so the word that I use, I don't like the word trauma. Uh, trauma, I think, is it's a sloppy word. It's a very inaccurate word. And I'm a word nerd. Um, we have a very limited lexicon for a very complex internal experience. I think it's very important to choose the words we use with intention. Um, so the word that I use is cortisol. When a brain is so soaked with cortisol, it is just not operating the way it traditionally does. And sometimes that is, if you imagine the metaphor of rain, it rains a little bit, um, it dries up, the world is green, yay, plants grow. Um, same with cortisol. A little bit of cortisol gets us up and moving in the morning, little burst if we need it for some stress to handle whatever's happening, then it remits, we go about our day, yay, production. Um, if you imagine if it rains for like three or four days in a row, there's puddles everywhere, it's a soggy, boggy mess, parts of five points are flooded, that street outside <laughs> of close hip is disgusting. Like as a curly headed human, I don't even bother to do anything with it. I'm sure not wearing my cute shoes oh, anywhere. Yeah. You know, I'm not, yeah, you gotta be curly headed. Yeah, yeah, I got the same. Um, and so like, we're not holding doors for each other. We're not doing, we're just kind of like, I just, I gotta get it done. Go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah, just get done, be over with it. It's like, and yeah, I have the same output, but man, I am frazzled and my clothes feel gross on me and my papers are all wet and my backpack's soaked and I just went done with this. Same thing happens with cortisol. So imagine finals week when it's just like, (laughs) I got one more. I got to finish this paper. I'm going to do this. I'm going to eat like two cheeseburgers. I'm going to sleep for two hours. I'm going to get up and crank this out. I'm going to do this. And like, y'all, like I'm on the edge, but we still get it done. Quarter saturated. That's when it's like, okay, <laughs> how oh, you doing? Clean, sounds over. Clean and wearing sounds clean. Like you a little bit. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's very yeah, that's one of those. How you doing? Wearing clean and wearing clean clothes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. about as good as I got, but I'll smile when I tell you. Then if it rains for like ten days in a row and it never stops, 
for anybody who was here in 2015, the flood we had in 2015. I was trapped here in 2015 in the flood. <laughs> because infrastructure breaks down. Bridges are washing away. Roads are impassable. Um, it's emergency management mode. Some people actually need rescue from where they are. You are not ordering Jimmy John's delivery. You're not <laughs> having an Uber come pick you up to do something. Like it is emergency management time. And the same thing happens in our brain with excess cortisol. So when a brain hits that threshold of cortisol, when we hit cortisoaked, that's what most people call trauma. And sometimes that happens because a dam breaks and there's just a huge deluge of water all at once. And a lot of times it is the repeated exposure of all this cortisol without time for it to remit. Our brains are not designed to sustain that, which then takes me all the way back to one other thing I think we need to do more of. We need to play. We need to be silly. We need to have time in our society to do that. We need to have ways to do that that don't involve necessarily alcohol or other substances. And don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing alcohol and other substances. I think a whole lot more stuff should be legal than what is. And a lot of that is tied back to institutional racism. We could do a whole other talk about that. Um, <laughs> That'll be for next, I, next week. Next, next time. <laughs> I, I think though what happens is that we have so little permission to just chill out. The only even thing we know how to do is chemically numb it out. And it's the only way we can get that stuff to be quiet because we don't cultivate a culture that teaches us how to just slow down and be silly for the sake of being silly. When is the last time either one of you danced in the rain? No. We gotta go dance in the rain after. Yeah, this. that's a good point. No, but it is a, would, fen a what, phenomenal point. Like what I what, what I was like when you say like you know be silly, have fun. I was just about to ask you like what do you I guess what do you mean by that? Because you know I mean, being in college, I mean there's plenty of silliness and there's plenty of fun. Dance party, I think is what she's saying. Dance party. I wiggle. If I do that in my room. I will have a dance party all by myself. Yes. I I resonate so much with what you're saying because so much of my I mean personal life growing up I was the the gifted kid who was you know way above my grade level in everything I was not <laughs> I was, you know the overachiever and you know my family put a lot of pressure on me because they saw my potential to be to have big academic achievements and you know success in my future career and all that and I was a competitive athlete and that's all Ooh. I did. And yes, and I still am to this day, I'm a division one athlete here at school. And it was right? just, <laughs> yeah. And it was just go, go, go all the time, but never any fun. And you know, it, it did, I hit a wall my freshman year of college and I hit many walls in high school, but the big wall was freshman year of college. And I just, I mean, my brain, it was soaked and I just lost it. I snapped and you know, I still struggle with all the residual of all that, you know, childhood trauma to this day. But, you know, now I do try to make room to just live life without the expectations of others or without the expectations of the, all the capital things I've been told. And the fact that my, you know, life depends on how much money I make and my career and my grades. Now I'm just like, you know what, it is it. It's about how happy I am. Am I happy when I'm studying or when I'm at workouts at six in the morning? Absolutely not. Am I happy when I have a one-man dance party in my room? Oh, yeah. So happy. <laughs> I may look a fool, but I'm having a good time. And, you know, that's one thing that I preach now to anyone who will listen, as annoying as it may be, is, like, trying to just, like, live life. That's why I tell you yeah. all the time. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny because we do what makes, you know, us kind of work really well together is we have very different experiences with mental health. For, like, like for her, it's like it was more of an early on like kind of started early, early onset on. and me, kept going <laughs> yeah 
I mean, like, for, like, and for me, like, I didn't, like, I didn't have too much happen to me, and I, I had to switch schools. But that was about it. I was like doing great junior senior year, but it was, it was actually when I got to college, that's when, that's when you know stuff started to happen for me, and mm-hmm. I, and I fell into the trap of just like you know not telling anyone, not telling yep. anyone. You know, pick yourself up, but like you know, why are you, why are you so upset? Deal with it, and you know, like it boiled over after the first semester of my freshman year. And then, you know, going home, I feel like going home your freshman year uh, for that first winter break is like a, like a really big thing because it's like the first time, you know, you're going home for the holidays, you're seeing your family as a college student. And you student. realize how much you've changed. Well, yeah, because mm-hmm. really, like, I feel like this, this is like the four years where you kind of become not necessarily who you are, but, you know. It's a defining point it, for sure in your growth as a and like human you, being. And you, you just like get exposed to experiences that you have never ever been put that's never been put in front of you before which can be really I feel like can be really exciting and terrifying but anyways yeah like when I got home like I told my parents what was going on which was really great and that you know they were there for me but I guess what I I guess what I deal with is exactly exactly what you're talking about is oversaturation like like in my head right now I got <laughs> I got about eight Way hours. Way too of, much going on. I got a, like eight hours of studying to do after this. I have a couple of assignments I have to do. I'm going to be studying all. Basically, I'm going to be studying until Sunday. Kind of a deal. And that's you know, in in I really resonated with what you said. Like over like puddles everywhere. I get that. In you know, you just got dancing. I just got to start. Yeah, I just started got to start dancing. You got to start skipping down the more. hallways with me. Yeah, uh, I can. I always skip down the hallways, and he won't skip with me. Yeah. Now he will. <laughs> yes. And you know what, partly too, you tapped on something um, about gender. And um, I talked to a lot of young guys about bro culture. And when I started talking about it, they're like, oh my gosh, yes. And there's this bro culture. So a lot of guys come see me uh, when their wiener is not compliant. Um, (laughs) That's the way that I I think about it. But but, you know, I mean, it's it's not compliant. A a (laughs) non-judgmental funny. Yeah. and, and I'll ask them, well, have you talked to any of your friends about this? Because what I'm thinking of is like, well, yeah, it's normal. At some point, all wieners go on strike. Yo, like yeah. sometimes, some for longer than others, some for different reasons. It's like super, super normal. And they're like, oh, God, no, I would never tell my guy. I would never tell my guy friends. I'm like, but these are like your, know, these are like your boys, though, friends. right? Yeah. And, and so, and even then when I do have the, like, I mentioned it, but they were like, oh, no, that's never happened to me. I'm like, well, you know, they're lying right to your face, right? because it's just normal but when there's no permission for there to be any wiggle room outside of these boxes when even just one person tries everybody else is like no 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 dude what are you doing what are you doing get back that's not that's not what we do and so like guys don't get to be silly guys don't get to be lots of things there's all these you know guys have to be responsible guys have to and then if we take it back to sex guys have to be the initiator Uh, but you can't ask for consent too awkwardly because then that's weird and why did you ask that way and guys are always supposed to be ready for sex and they're supposed to know how to have sex and don't even get me started on the language of giving my partner an orgasm because unless that thing came gift wrapped from Macy's with a big red bow, nobody gave me anything. <laughs> but we don't talk about that, which then kind of ties in. We don't really encourage women to embrace their own sexuality. So then women get taught the same thing. Men give us an orgasm. So then when sex starts to happen, she's looking at him in a very heteronormative way. Well, come on, give me this thing. <laughs> and he says, and then maybe he's super aware. And he says, well, what do you like? I'm sorry, but that's so, that is so real. And it's, yeah, 
communicate. Yeah, <laughs> literally just like, like just well, like boil down anything to communication problems. I think. And I think though that's where we go so wrong is I think we one we start sex education way 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 too late way 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 too late, and and some people not at all. I do trainings with um first year medical students, and usually like five to seven percent of a class of I don't know, 100 to 120 have never had any sex education. We were talking are, about that, right? We were, literally, we were literally just, so we were literally just talking about that before you came on. She's like, well, I, I got mine. When did you get yours? I got mine in sixth grade. Sixth grade. Uh, yeah, which is way too late. And it was very lack, lacking. I got mine Parks, all boys. Parks, plumbing, and diseases? <laughs> yeah. Uh, plumbing, yeah. Oh, Catholic school. Oh, yeah. Well, I went, so I went, so I went to ca- all boys Catholic school for two years and then decided it was not for me and I and I left <laughs> I can yeah, only so imagine what sex ed at all boys catholic school would be like yeah it was pretty straightforward <laughs> just don't yeah no yeah. sex yeah just don't that's that's usually all that is and most sex ed is just um plumbing pregnancy and prevention that's exactly mm-hmm. what they, mine they was yeah. that's what I said it was what's the anatomy what's your period and don't use condoms and also don't have sex and that was pretty now, much interestingly it. um i hear you say anatomy does that mean you learned about the clitoris no i did not yeah do you know no, why i didn't because it's strictly uh like a pleasure organ and they were only concerned with biological look at you i'm so proud yeah. but it was strictly concerned with biological function um and like pregnancy things and I have a whole beef with sex ed, as do many in America today. I mean, it's so uninclusive and, you know, like you said, focused on very unimportant aspects of what sex ed should be about. It's basically just a glorified anatomy lesson. Well, I don't even know that I would say it's glorified. I think it's not glorified. Yeah. It's a paltry anatomy lesson. Yes. I know Um, more about the bones in my body than I did about my own body in sixth grade. Yes. And it's amazing when I teach um, Psych 300, Psychology of Human Sexual Behavior, um, it's almost inevitable. 90% of the class is like, oh, this is easy. I know all the things about sex. And in the first class, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Um, And we don't even start with anatomy. It takes a little while to get people comfortable enough to say all the words. Um, And so where I think we go so wrong then is when people come to college, we start having conversations about consent. We are starting at step three. Step one, have some education and some language. People need to be comfortable saying the word clitoris, blowjob, vulva, to know even what a vulva is. It is not the girl version of a vulva. Um, a vagina and a vulva are completely different things. So anatomically, we don't even use the right words. So step one is having education and knowing what's going on with my own self. Step two is knowing what I like. Knowing what feels good, knowing what parts I like to be touched, what parts I don't, which I can find out all by myself. Um, which masturbation is another word that people just don't say. Um, and to go back a, a, to a different part of history, um, it was first recorded in the late 1700s that masturbation was actually called self-abuse. Um, and there was a French physician who published the first paper uh, theorizing that masturbation caused insanity. This took root in the medical field big, big, big time. All throughout the 1800s into the early 1900s, Um, medical science believed that masturbation caused physical ailments and insanity. So just kind of let that sink in for a second. I can see see the problem in that. To the point where they would actually put little boys um, and think of like a chastity belt 
and it would be like a leather like leather underwear with a metal cod piece where the penis and testicles went um, and some of the more barbaric ones actually had little spikes on the inside so if that little boy got an erection um, it would stab Deep his breath, penis Deep breaths. Um, well, I'm like, and so that's actually why circumcision is still so prolific in our culture, because the idea was if little boys had to pull back their foreskin in order to clean behind it, um, that movement of pulling back the foreskin would tempt them to masturbate. So foreskin, uh, the removal of foreskin outside of religious or uh, ritualistic and different culture purposes, um, at this point, it's aesthetic. Uh, that yeah, it's just become the norm. So people, yeah. yeah, it's just become the norm. So people just prefer how it looks. Anatomically, there is no reason for the foreskin to be removed. As long as there's proper cleaning, no reason. Wow. No reason at all. So it was originally propagated to prevent masturbation. Mm -hmm. um, and so when there's this much stigma, and it's, and I can give you like graham crackers were originally invented to prevent masturbation, as were Kellogg's cornflakes. Um, and so this stuff isn't like super far removed <laughs> from, our, from our lives. And, and so then if step two is me knowing myself, well, we've already shamed that. So especially for women, women absolutely don't talk about masturbation. And for the longest time, women's sexuality was completely ignored because who cares? We were just there to make babies. Have babies. Yeah. Yep. That's it. And so then once I have some education, some knowledge, some language, and I've spent some time with my own self and I know what I like and who I am, then step three is I can consent to a partner to engage with me in certain ways. We don't do that. We start at step three and then we judge people when they don't do it well. And I'll tell you, it is heartbreaking to both and have people sitting in my office and say, I didn't consent. That was not wanted. And to have people sitting in my office with saying, I thought there was consent. I thought this was wanted. I can't believe that I might be this person. And it breaks my heart to repeatedly see individuals suffer because of a misinformed, judgmental, ignorant culture. It sucks. Wow. There's, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's so amazing how there's not amazing, bad in a bad way, amazing how there's so many things that can be so easily remedied. There's so many things that really have no logical basis whatsoever. And they're so harmful, but because it's so ingrained in us and everyone's too scared to step outside the box to change the systems, we're stuck with stupid things like circumcision and poor sex ed and all these things that, I mean, like I said, serve no logical function and they're harmful. How far yeah. would we advance as a society if we would change all these things? I mean, even going into the way we structure our, our financial markets and sex ed and mental health. And I mean, I could go on a whole tangent, but I'm not going to because it would just go on and on. But I mean, I think that's one thing like that my goal for the podcast and all the guests we're going to have on and like everything from hearing from all these perspectives is like one, like I'm sure there, there's so many people out there who are already thinking these things. who are already aware that there are faults and all these things, these amazing things you've brought up. People can very easily figure out that these are issues. But the, the bigger message is that it's okay to think that and it's okay to, to change it and to take those, those next steps. And yeah, we're up against a wall, but it can be done. And like you said, I, if only five people hear this, they tell two. And now we have a whole, a whole army of people to fight the system. Yeah. And like, I, I think, oh, go sorry, go ahead. Uh, so I was, I was going to say, like, when you're, when you're talking about earlier about like, you know, young men. And like the bro, I think you said the bro zone or something like that. Bro culture. Yeah, bro culture. Bro culture. Uh, so what's funny is uh, in my fraternity, actually, I so I, I started a group to like 
basically directly combat that. Good it's for you. It's a group. So we meet like one, like once a week and obviously like whoever wants to show up, but I do it like topic based, but you know, it's topics that men and especially fraternity brothers should be able to like conversations that you should be able to have. I, I call it like healthy ongoing conversations that, nice. you know, that guys and, you know, brothers should be having. And like, and you're talking about like all these problems that genuinely just come from not talking about them within your own social, like within your own social group or your own, like within your own social hier hierarchy, if, uh, if you will. But it, I can definitely see the value in that because, and I've been doing it, so I've been doing it for like about a year and a half now. Heck yeah. And for the entire first year, nobody showed up to a single meeting. And you held that space anyway. Yeah. That it, is what, that's what courage looks like. Well, it, it was, I mean, it was just so amazing. Like when I had, when I like kind of, when I came back this year and like had my first like successful meeting after a year, it's just like, oh God, finally, <laughs> you know, and people yeah. really liked it. And like that was, and that was, that was the craziest thing about it. What I learned is like people really enjoy having these guys really enjoy having these conversations because they can't have it with anyone else because yeah. they're, they're like, oh my God, I feel the same way too. Or like, oh my God, like, yeah, like totally makes sense. I can relate to that. Here's my story. So I, it, it's yeah. been super beneficial. Hopefully it keeps going, but, but like, I can totally resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. Humans crave authentic connection. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we lack that so much, but once someone takes the one step to start the right. conversation, because if no one's talking about it, no one thinks anyone wants to talk about it. But once right. you take that step, you know, like you did, um, and people realize it's okay. It's like the floodgates open. Yeah. It was like, what was really interesting. What was really interesting was like for that, for that period of time that like nobody was really showing up, you know, I would get people who would like come up and congratulate me for, for starting something like that. And I think that's all that like, and I feel like that's also kind of a problem with, with, you know, people these days is like, they're so willing to give the superficial gratification towards you to show that they, you know, they support you and they support the decision. I'm like, great. Where, where are you? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. Like what, are you, it. what are you doing at seven o'clock on a Wednesday night? You know, <laughs> you just have to which keep I, fighting for that. Which I think also comes back to a bit of that internalized capitalism. And sometimes that capital is social clout. How many likes did I get? How many retweets did I, did I get? How many followers did this get me? So we now have this way to measure. And it's like, well, I gave you a like. I added to your currency. Isn't that enough? We stray away from genuine human connection and emotion and replace and, it with whatever else we can find because people are scared. It's of, honorable. Yeah. 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 And I'll go back to Nate, something you said at the very beginning when you said is exciting and terrifying. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that dialectic that you named because I think people crave authentic connection more than anything. And the, the cost of vulnerability to try to find it for some people, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Especially if it has been proven to them. Yeah. Especially if it's been proven to them that that it is not going to be well received. And especially if that was from a, like caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things I just keep thinking about as we're having this conversation is, um, you know, and, and so I'm still really thinking about this question: How do we make change? And one of the things I think is putting our judgment in check. We are judgmental people. Um, it's the way our brains are wired. And so we don't have places to mess up, which is an issue. White people don't have places to mess up around race. Um, straight people don't have places to mess up around orientation. Cis people don't have places to mess up around gender. 
we don't have places to mess up without fear of like judgment or being canceled or being labeled an ist or whatever. We don't have places. And, and so I think then what happens is we just don't even show up in the conversation, which means any flawed logic that we have about a group of people never gets challenged. And so I think about how do we look at somebody walking across campus who is maybe 6'2", wearing pumps with a full beard and a beautiful dress on? <laughs> I mean, I think of myself as very open-minded and I try to make myself aware. And my first thought would be like, hell yeah, you do you. And do we say that to that person? Because I will tell you that human walking around campus, hearts racing most of the time. Am I safe? Am I going to get yelled at? Are people staring at me? Are they judging me? So think about that brain who just wants authentic connection and wants a tribe to belong to. How much effort do those of us who have our tribe, how much effort do we put in to making sure everybody has a tribe? I, I preach the power of the power one compliment can have. We talked about yes. that. Yeah, we do. Being a, being a good stranger. Being a good stranger. And not to try to make myself sound like some phenomenal, you know, amazing person, but I do like if I, anyone, it doesn't matter who they are. Cause I do try to see everybody equally, but I do try to be aware of those people who probably don't have their tribe. Like you said, and I like the way you put that the power one compliment can have. I like your nails. I love your shirt at my job. I get a lot of people who come in who you can tell are on the outliers of what people consider the norm, whatever that is, what is the norm? There is no norm. And I always, I'm like, whatever I can compliment or say or anything, or just be nice. Cause I know for myself personally, and I'm a very average looking person, I guess. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but even for me, the power of a single compliment, how that mm -hmm. helps me feel like I fit in or feel like I'm doing okay in the world. How much power can that have for anyone else? Especially those you don't even, you can't physically tell if they're someone who is struggling, if that makes sense, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that is a good point. Like how many times, even if we think like, hell yeah, you do you. How many times do we say that? You know? And how many times do we say that to the people around us? How many times do we call it out? Cause like, it was, there's a group of all people who look like me and somebody says something ugly. Isn't it easier to just kind of let it go? Yeah. No. Uh -huh. Cause then I don't, cause then I don't want to be outed by my, ousted by my group either. And so I think one of the things to very much normalize. And I don't want people to feel vilified because I think too, there's so much defensiveness that comes up. People want to say, well, I, I don't do that. I, I mess up. I, I've judged people. I'm human. How do I not? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that that practice of othering people, there's a protective function because if I make people other and I do this, then I'm probably doing it with other folks. It ensures my connection. And that's why Nate, I really wanted to acknowledge like, the courage it took for you to hold a space as an in of one. Yeah. That's hard. And sometimes that's hardest to do with the people who are seemingly most similar to us. Well, what's funny you say that like one of my first, like the, my intro to my first, like, you know, successful meeting, I was like, guys, there are two words that are rarely in the same sentence, fraternity and mental health. <laughs> yeah. So let's dive in, you know, <laughs> Yeah. And how, like, and how wonderful to give people that permission. Um, and I think about then even, uh, you know, how many other people might be surprised? Like what, you know, what are the assumptions people make about either one of you when they see you? What are the assumptions people make about me when they see me? Um, and how often do we take time to actually know somebody? 
How often do we just say, hey, how are you, as we're walking the other direction? Clearly, we don't really care how that person is. Um, and so I just think so often um, when it comes to sex, especially, and I appreciated, uh, appreciated the acknowledgement of how limited sex education is. We don't include queerness. We don't include um, asexuality, gender, anything about gender, really. We don't talk about different ways people use their body parts. Um, everything is very heteronormative, and most sex ed centers around the idea of a big, hard penis, um, to the point that premature ejaculation is a diagnosis. Why is there no diagnosis for a woman who has an orgasm within 30 seconds? Exactly. Why is that? Why? There's no there is no reason health, for it. There is no it's other mental lacking. health category that is separated by sex. And the only reason that exists is a phallocentric definition of sex. Because it's the idea you need a big, hard penis to have sex. Let me guarantee you, you don't. Um, and so I think it's even just... population if that was all there was. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think, I think genuinely being inclusive um, is not like a, a set of behaviors. I think it is genuinely a way of thinking about things. Um, being intentional to think about who is not at the table. Who didn't get invited to make these decisions? As we have this conversation, I am so embarrassed that our state has introduced a bill criminalizing gender-affirming uh, healthcare to trans youth. Criminalizing, which means if a doctor were to prescribe hormone blockers, a hormone blocker just basically pushes pause on puberty. That's all it does. And as soon as you stop taking it, puberty will resume as normal. It's like getting an incomplete in a class. No harm, no foul. Nobody ever even knows the difference. Um, if a doctor were to prescribe hormone blockers, they could be sentenced to jail time and lose their medical license for the rest of life. And where is the logical foundation for that? There is none. Well, it's a political foundation. It's, political, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's not logical. It's political. <laughs> it's many things, but it isn't logical. And that's, I mean, I can't think of a single problem these days. That isn't. I would say that kind of encompasses everything that we talked about. Everything. It's just a lack of, lo you know, lack of logic. A lack yeah. of common sense. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. it looks like we're almost just like kind of like a last last question that I was going to get to. I feel like a half hour ago, but we got going on such a good, which such is a, a great, great tangent, thing. great which tangent, is totally fine. Uh, so, I, my my question was: so, what's like one of the biggest, I guess, common misconceptions in your field that you encounter? Which is obviously a very big question. So, if you could put like one, if it, like, one big thing that you want yeah. people to take away from this. Um. So those, I think, are a little bit different questions, and I'm going to see if I can't answer them both. Um, one of the things I would most want people to take away is to explore themselves. Um, physically, emotionally, value-wise, judgment-wise, um, I think it is really tempting to want to see ourselves as better than we are um, and to think that, like, I'm just good at this. And the reality is... Um, I think rarely is that the case. Even for me, I've been doing this work for a long, long time. I still work to pay attention to my judgments, put them in check. Sometimes a whole new thing comes up. And um, so for me recently, it's the learning of the, the language of super straight. Oh, I have so many reactions to super straight. Um, and, and I also believe that people um, are entitled and have the, the ability to be attracted to certain things, certain people, certain body parts. I'm nobody who, you know, somebody wants to just go out and have random sex and never get somebody's name. Cool. Like do what you can do. Just do it on purpose. Um, and so I, I, I think that then if, um, I think, yeah, I think to, to know oneself 
is very, very powerful. And then to be intentional with how we let ourselves be known. Um, that I think that in an individualistic culture, we are very much encouraged to know ourselves. I don't know that we're always encouraged to be gentle in how we make ourselves known to others. Um, and I think one of the big misconceptions in the field, other than just what people assume about me, uh, people assume I just like have sex swings in every door of my house and like constantly have leather on under anything I'm wearing. Uh, it gets weird. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, quite frankly, is um, when it comes to gender, I think people underestimate how much male sexuality set the tone for what is expected of all sexuality. Um, very few female-bodied people actually orgasm during penetrative sex. Um, and so a lot of women will come and say, well, I don't come during sex. Well, that's actually really normal. Um, expecting a woman to come during penetrative sex alone would be like expecting somebody with a penis to come without their penis ever being touched. Um, the clitoris and the penis are homologous tissue. So we would never expect that of a man. Why would we expect that of a woman? Um, to go back to what I said about um, orgasm, you know, that there it's very uh, gendered in what we expect. And I think even the idea of being diverse in how our body parts get used, people are sometimes surprised to learn that like your armpits and your knee pits are actually huge erogenous zones. Uh, erogenous zones are just anywhere where there's a lot of nerve endings, more so than usually like breasts. Um, but that's not what we novelized in our society. Um, and so that's not then what, but that's from a very, again, from a very male centric point of view. And so when I think about like inclusive healthcare, when I think about inclusive sex education, even giving people permission to not use body parts in stereotypical ways. Um, so I think there's just a lot of misconception about what is quote unquote normal. And quite frankly, normal is statistics. I can make anything normal. It just depends on what I compare it against. Wow. That's a phenomenal answer because there are some misconceptions I didn't even, you know, I think you, I might have had. You said that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, now we do. <laughs> in a um, short explanation. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a phenomenal Seriously, episode. Thank we, you. My awesome. eyes have been opened many a time in the past about Yay. an hour. Um, thank you so much. Um, I hope you guys listening enjoyed this. Make sure to keep up with Dr. Sarah. You do a lot of really cool things. I've been reading up on you. You're awesome. Um, check out our social media as always at the daily dose podcast on Instagram and yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to call it. We're going to call it. Thank you so much again, Dr. Sarah. Thank you for the opportunity. This was really fun. Bye guys.